AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-lunch pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. This summer, click into cordless power with Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds looking fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear leaves and debris with the 40-volt leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at the Home Depot and on homedepot.com. How doers get more done. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. Hey guys, it's Jake Brennan, host and creator of iHeartRadio's Disgraceland podcast. You're hearing my voice because I just sat down and spoke with Elton John about his new film, Rocket Man, and we thought that this would be as good a reason as any to pilot a new podcast iHeartRadio is creating called Icons. Icons is a show with real talk with the greatest minds in music and culture, intimate, incredible conversations with the most famous creators and artists of our time, where you gain insight into their music and art and learn the backstories and secrets about where they came from, how they got here, and what's next. Given the show's mission, you can see why we thought Elton John would make a good first episode. To make this happen, yours truly headed halfway around the world to sit down with the Rocket Man himself so we could get this out and into this new feed. And the conversation is raw and inspired, focusing specifically on Elton's new film, Rocket Man, and the iconic Elton John songs featured within it. All right, let's get into it. Here's me, Jake Brennan of Disgraceland, talking to the one and only Elton John, a true icon. Coming to Boston again, right? I'm coming to Boston in the winter, yes. Okay, that's where I'm It's from. the last but one show. I do Boston, then Nassau, and then I go to Australia. Wow, okay. Ready? Thank you for taking the time to speak with us, Elton. It's our privilege. We're here today to talk about Rocket Man, your new movie, and to spin some of the songs from your career that are featured in the film. 
Tell us about the initial idea for the movie and what you're feeling as millions head out to the theaters as it opens this week. It's been kicking around for about 12 years. Um, initially, we thought about David LaChapelle directing it. And so it goes back to the Red Piano in Las Vegas. Um, and it's gone through a couple of different lives since then. Um, and really, in the last three or four years, it's come to fruition. But most studios turned it down. Um, I think because of the content and luckily enough Paramount said we'll do it and they've been fantastic and so it all started last year um, and uh, it's been an amazing amazing journey to get this movie made and uh, but it's been worth the wait because I think the movie is I, I, I can't find any fault with it myself and I'm looking at myself which is very strange um, but I'm loving every second of it because it's honest and it's truthful, or even though it's a fantasy, it's truthful about me. So many of your song titles would have worked for the name of the film. Why Rocket Man? Um, well, that was Lee Hall probably. Um, I don't know who came up with the title. Lee Hall wrote the script, um, and Rocket Man was mooted. And I said, that's a great title. Um, yeah, there could have been other titles. Uh, you could have had um, I'm Still Standing. Mm -hmm. You could have had The Bitches Back. <laughs> um, or Don't Let the Sun Go Down. I mean, I mean, there is so many titles, but Rocket Man, I think, is by far and away the best title. It's iconic, for sure. Karen Edgerton, who plays you in the movie, does an incredible job. His acting, his voicing of your classic songs, he completely hits it out of the park. Uh, talk about the challenge of finding the right actor to portray you and how you settled on Taryn. Well, originally, the actor who was going to play me was Tom Hardy, and that was a few years ago. Um, and time passed, and time passed, and I think Tom would have been too old to play um, play me. And also, Tom doesn't sing, and I didn't want the movie to be lip-synced. I wanted someone to sing the songs, because then they take on the persona of being me. And so I knew Taron could sing, uh, because I'd heard him sing I'm Still Standing on the Sing soundtrack. And then when I met him on Kingsman 2... Um, Matthew Vaughan, who directed that movie and produced this movie with my husband, David Furnish, said, you should hear Taron sing. He's amazing. And so we put him together with Giles Martin, son of George, and they worked so hard to get this um, soundtrack right. And I'm astonished how good he is. I'm astonished. Um, not for once do I wince at anything he sings. In fact, it's... Um, it's not only does he act brilliantly, but he just makes the songs his own, which is an incredibly difficult. My songs, our songs rather, are not easy songs to sing. And he kind of makes them their own and act of genius for me. Yeah, he kills it. He's incredible. Yeah. I mean, when you're watching the movie, you just you want to hear more of him, which yeah. is bizarre because he's playing an icon. <laughs> well, I think that's why the soundtrack will do well, because I think with The Greatest Showman, people saw the film and they then wanted to buy the soundtrack so they could be reminded of the visuals of the film. And I think this is a, a very visual film. And I think people will go and buy the soundtrack after they see the movie to be reminded of particular scenes that they really enjoyed. 100%. I'm going to get to some of those themes in a, in a minute. This is sort of, you know, we're kind of flowing through here in this fashion to get all the questions for iHeart. Um, so I, I apologize if it's a little inorganic. <laughs> You're worse than me. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of themes in the film, but the idea of self-acceptance is central throughout Rocket Man. Can you talk about the new song that was written for the film, I'm Going to Love Me Again, and Taryn's performance with you on this track? Yeah, we needed a new song for the end credits, and I wanted a kind of thing like I'm Still Standing, but not I'm Still Standing, obviously. Um, and I wanted um, 
to have an up-tempo song. So Bernie came up with the lyric of I'm Gonna Love Me Again, which I really loved. And um, I, when I looked at it, um, I wrote it in Atlanta um, in the afternoon about three or four months ago. And I wanted, I got the Supremes track of Come See About Me, and I got the tempo from that. And I wanted to be like one of those old Motown soul records from the 19, late 1960s. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a track in the film called Breaking Down the Walls of Heartache. Um, and it's kind of similar to that. I wanted it to be joyous um, to go with the lyrics because the lyrics are joyous. And I love the result. And Taron, we did the duet together in London and um, did it as quick as I did. <laughs> Amazing. He's incredible. Your songs can be both incredibly cinematic, dramatic, intimate, and sometimes autobiographical, sort of like music biopics. That said, what words would you use to describe your biopic? Uh, it's not a biopic. It's a fantasy. It's a, mu it's a musical, and a musical fantasy of my life. Um, it's based on events, um, but we take liberties with them. Um, for example, I never played Crocodile Rock at the Troubadour. And when, I, that, was when that was suggested to me, about the song at the Troubadour, I went, oh, no, not Crocodile Rock. But then when I saw the movie, and I saw when people levitate and everything like that, I thought, this is the perfect song to play. Um, so what do I know? It's like me not wanting to put Benny in the Jets out as a signal. <laughs> um, and it works perfectly. So, um, yeah, it's... Uh, what was the question? <laughs> How, what word would you use to describe the biopic? But you already oh, did because yeah. you said it's not a biopic. Which no, it, it's it's a musical fantasy. Yeah. Um, the music carries the scene through um, the dark side, and it gets lifted by the music. Um, and things like Crocodile Rock, which I never wanted to be at the Troubadour, because I, you know, things are out of order in the film. They're mm -hmm. not in the right order. Um, they're not chronological. Um, but the scene at the Troubadour, when I play Crocodile Rock, is so magic. Uh, and so magical, rather. Um, and it just gives a joyous feel to the movie. And even the mo though the movie has very dark moments in it, it's ultimately joyous because I get redemption. And the music helps you. Just when you go through one bad scene, then the music will lift you to another. You need that. You need the levity. You yeah. need that fantastical nature to carry yes. the narrative and yeah. don't keep doesn't keep you bogged down. In I mean, for example, when I saw I Want Love, which you know wasn't written written by the time this, and when they use it at the beginning of the film when all my family sang it, I was astonished. I cried so hard um, because it was a perfect song to use then. I would never have thought of that in a million years. Yeah. And when they when we write your song, it, that was kind of how it was in a way. Hmm. And you know and. Yeah, but I Want Love just completely, when I first saw the film about four months ago, I mean, it was very rough. Oh, my God, I wasn't expecting that. And the way everyone sings it, oh, my God, yeah. It's tough. When, you know, it's, I, I can watch myself sometimes uh, and not, but it's the little things that remind me of my childhood um, that come through in the movie because it's set in rehab um, and we keep going back to the childhood and my little, little self um, the little boy Matthew Ilsley who plays me, and then uh, Kit Connor who plays me when I'm a little bit older. Um, they really that, that's the, the part that I'm so moved by um, because more or less that's true. There's there's particular reverence and love for your grandmother in the film. That's obvious. Yeah. Well, like all grandmothers or most grandmothers, she was the, the matriarch of the mm. family. I was born in her house. Mm. Um, she died at my house, mm. and throughout my life, she was the one person that always stood up, stood up for me. Um, when things went wrong, she was the first person I went to if I was in tears or I felt 
that I'd you know done something wrong. I it was my my grandmother. I I turned to and uh, she was um, absolutely wonderful, um, and she was you know my rock. Is there a particular song in the movie, or just a song from your catalog that you've written that reminds you of your grandmother, or that, or that? Not particularly. Um, I haven't really written one about my grandmother, but um, no, she was just always there for me, and and I say I'm so happy that I could give her the um, opportunity to die at my house and live a lovely life um, when I was brought up with her, and I. You know, she was the greatest cook. There was, she, we never had any money, but she made things meet. She, we never went hungry. She was always there if I fell over, if I was ill. It was just, and you know, and my parents were too. But my grandmother was, you know, I think people's grandparents when their children are so special, and um, it's, it, she was wonderful. And now you've immortalized her in your film, which is pretty special. It's pretty great. Um, simple question. How did you decide which of your many hit songs would be featured in Rocket Man? I didn't have anything to do with it. Really? I never had anything to do with the musical choices or anything. That was entirely down to the director, um, Giles Martin, who did the music, and Taron. Um, one thing I did, they, they said, what's a fast number we should put in? They had a song. I can't remember which one it was. And then I, they said, what about Hercules? And I went, oh, yeah, that's great. Do Hercules instead. And... Um, they consulted me if there was something like that, but I, I just stayed away from it. I had, you know, as I say, I didn't know what songs were going to be in it, and I didn't care. That's a lot of creative trust to put in your team. Well, it's I think excellent. if you a team of people who trust each other and you've got a brilliant creative team, I've always worked like that. I never tell Bernie what to write. I never tell what my band what to play. Um, the great thing about musicianship and collaboration is someone always comes up with something you would never have thought of. And it always usually comes up to be trumps. And uh, certainly with uh, the music in this, I'm floored by the way the music sounds and the way they've done it. And, you know, these are very well-known songs with well-known arrangements. And what Giles Martin and Taron have done with them um, has left Bernie and I in, in, in a state of elation. <laughs> Rocket Man, your new film, touches upon many different chapters in your life. And the one constant in your career has been Bernie Taupin. And let's talk about meeting him, what he's meant to you both personally and professionally. And is there a particular song of yours that best reflects your collaborative nature creatively with him that you'd like to play, a favorite of yours? Well, our meeting was serendipity. I mean, I answered an advertisement in the Newsly Express for singers and songwriters. Um, I went to the office at Liberty Records in London when they were just opening their label in England. And I told the guy, Ray Williams, um, that I couldn't write lyrics but I could write melodies and I'd written two songs for, for my band, Bluesology. Um, and we made two records, but then it was, <laughs> there was reel to reel tapes. It was the end of the 1960s. There were no cassette, just the office was full of reel to reel tapes and bundles and bundles of envelopes of all the envelopes he gave me. He just said, take this one. He never looked at it. It could have been anyone. If he hadn't picked that one, I wouldn't, I mean, it's an extraordinary story. Um, and, so that, and then when I met Bernie, after I started writing to his lyrics, he came down and met. It was like we got on, like the scene in the restaurant um, where we both sing Streets of Laredo in the film. Um, it was exactly like that. It was, it was um, brotherhood at first sight. And uh, he was the brother I never had. He was the friend I always wanted. And, you know, it's lasted over 52 years. And it's been in the film. It's the glue that holds the film together. It's the love story between both of us. Um, and you know, I, I mess it up. Um, and then, 
like if you love somebody, you get it back together. And I think that's one probably one of the most poignant things, especially towards the end of the film, which really chokes me up when I'm in rehab and he comes to visit me and he gives me more music and I start writing I'm Still Standing. Um, um, it's a wonderful performance by Jamie Bell. And yeah. um, it completely counteracts my lunacy and craziness. But that's how Bernie was. There wasn't mm. any, you know, he was the, um, the calm and I was the nutcase. Oh, Marty Robbins. I got to know, just how did you guys get all that country music then over in England? Oh, we, we got everything in England. Really? I mean, Marty Robbins, um, I first heard El Paso, and that's one of Bernie's favorite records, and Marty Robbins was Bernie's hero. But I knew about Marty Robbins and all those people, Jim Reeves, all the, you know, Hank Williams, all those people. We, you know, we got the records. Um, you have to remember, American records were so much better than British ones, so anything American we tried to find and listen to, whether it was country, jazz, blues, rock and roll, or whatever. And I grew up in the 50s, so I grew up on Guy Mitchell and Johnny Ray and um, Doris Day and K-Star, um, and it, that was great. But then, of course, when Elvis came in, um, it exposed us to country and western blues, gospel, and, of course, the whole world changed. Um, but because living in England, you always were after American music because you just you knew that was where it, that's where it came from. So it was a real deal. Yeah. Let's switch gears for a minute and talk about your Farewell Yellow Brick Road Tour. You announced it early last year, and it got underway last September. And how's it been going so far? It's amazing. This week we'll do our 90th show. Um, it's been the biggest tour of my life. I mean, we could probably tour for five years. It's, it's been extraordinary, the amount of people we played to. The, the, you know, the sellouts have been so quick. Um, I'm having a great time um, because it's the most visual show I've ever done. Um, on the road anyway. Um, and I'm just having a great time. I really, the set list was worked out first because you had to, because then you have to get the graphics behind it. What are you going to do? Um, and I'm loving every minute of it. And um, it's not become boring yet. And, you know, nearly 100 shows. And we're a third of the way through it. And uh, I've got a long, long way to go. Um, but the great thing about it is it, I'm really, really enjoying it. And I, the way I wanted to do, I wanted to go out with a huge bang. And that's what's happening. It sounds like you're having a ton of fun playing. Are you going to have regrets when it's over, when you're not on the stage anymore? Oh, I'd be so glad not to schlep. Um, <laughs> I've always said when I did my press conference about the tour, I said, I'm fed up with schlepping. You know, I'm, by the time I finish, I'll be 74, 75. Um, I have two children, two young boys. I would like to do something else different um, with the rest of my life. I'll be writing and I'll be making records. Um, I have two musicals already written. Um, and you know, one of them starting workshopping in, in, in June in New York. Um, I'll be making records. But I just would like to spend some time not getting in a plane, um, not getting in a car. And I've been sitting in a van since I was 16 or 17. And... You know, musicians are gypsies, and it's part and parcel of, of one's life. But for the last, you know, few years of my life, I'd like to do something different, and I think I've earned that. You have, for sure. The film does an incredible job of recreating 70s Hollywood, particularly with the use of the songs Amarina, which is also my wife and my wedding yeah. song, so thank you very much, and Crocodile Rock. Uh, have you decided where and when your tour will end yet, and what are the chances it ends back at the Troubadour in Hollywood where it all began for you in America? I don't know. We haven't thought about the end yet. Um, we're just getting through the first part. And then we will, this year, uh, in the next three or four weeks, we'll be sitting down and planning 
the end of the tour in 2021 and what we're going to do, where it's going to be. We don't know yet. Should be Boston. It's hmm? Boston. <laughs> <laughs> are you a Boston boy? Yeah, of course. Well, what were you doing in Denver? Is that where you live? I had a show. I was oh, show, staging yeah, my yeah. podcast live. Wow. <clears throat> It's not going to be in Boston. Yeah, <laughs> you've already won the football. You've won the you've won the baseball, and exactly. now you can win the hockey. We're about to win the hockey right now. <laughs> and then you want him to end this tournament. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, no. I had to put one in. Going to his American home, Dodger Stadium would be nice. I'd put in for that. Okay, we're almost through here. Um, thanks for your time. We appreciate it. Um, so obviously, it's impossible to cover your entire life in two hours in a film. And to that end. What was the decision process like as to what had to go in and what had to be cut out? Um, we had more characters in the film. Um, we had different characters that unfortunately ended up on the cutting room floor. They are, well, the film would have been four hours long. I mean, it's, it's the, exactly the right length. And they didn't really add that much to the story. Um, you know, when you make a movie or you make an album, you have to know what to leave in and what to leave out. Um, and, there was a lot of people wanting things in and wanting things out. And it was a committee in the end um, that decided what should be in and what should be out. Um, and it's a shame because there were so many great sequences that hit the cutting room floor. But it, at the end of the day, you've got to get it to two hours or less. And, uh, and so those decisions weren't mine. Um, and as I say, it just cover, it covers those twenty years. And I, by looking when I look at the film, I think I did all that in twenty years, and you and I did even more, but that's not in, in the movie at all. So um, it just covers the importance of when you're young, um, feeling inferior, having an inferiority complex, not having sex when you're twenty three, um, and then making up for lost time. And boy, did I make up for lost time. <laughs> you certainly did. I feel like a lot of that was a lot of the Hollywood making up for lost time. Harry Nilsson, Ringo Starr yeah. was all kind of left out by the wayside, yeah. which is probably a good thing. Um, you said you became emotional while watching it. Can you elaborate which scenes? Um, well, beginning the beginning of the movie, um, when my family sing I Want Love, um, my father, I start singing it, my father starts singing it, my mother and my grandmother. And it's a brilliant idea. I mean, I would never have thought that. And, it, and that... First time I saw that, um, I was just a mess. Um, um, because my childhood was, you know, it took me a long time to break out of my childhood. And then when I broke out of my childhood, um, it all happened so quickly that I didn't, you know, there wasn't anything in between my childhood and becoming Elton John. So um, that was what led to my downfall, really. But um, I think that scene, the scene when I'm writing your song with Bernie, um, the scene where the blood is dropping out of my nose in Madison Square Garden onto the tissue or the towel. That reminded me of so many horrible things. Yeah. And then, of course, the end scene in rehab. Um, and the boys, the both boys, um, was so brilliant. And um, the scene of the, the academy, which I have such fond memories of, and, of course, the main one at the end is when Bernie comes to rehab. And I'm mopping the floors and he turns up and I'm so happy to see him because the last time I'd seen him in the restaurant, I was really horrible to him. He has that great line. He says, oh, I'm surprised you know how to do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is your life story, which is serious at times, obviously. But the movie's highly entertaining in the way the film uses your songs to advance the narrative. It's super creative. Which musical scene from the film is your favorite? Whew. Um... 
That's difficult. I love Saturday nights are right for fighting. I love, I only noticed this the third time I saw the movie. When I'm in the restaurant, I'm talking to Bernie and I'm going back. The, every diner is singing very softly. The story seems to be the hardest word. It's sad, so sad. Um, that, a tiny dancer is brilliant. When I'm so obviously upset that Bernie's gone off with a girl and I'm sitting here on the greatest night of my life on my own. Um, that is very thought provoking um, for me. Because that was a very, you know, that kind of did happen. Um, but to be honest with you, I love it. I love it all. But those, those are the highlights for me. Um, and then when Renata and I sing down at the Sango Danami, and Renata's only in the film for a very short time. This is my wife, um, and it just covers it so quickly. But so it didn't. We didn't need to elaborate. It was a mistake. It was my mistake. And um, it covers it in about five minutes. We sing "Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me" together. Um, and I think it's, it do, uh, somebody suggested not having it in the film. I could not leave the fact that I got married and I was a gay man out of a movie. Um, and I wanted it to show her as being loving and I made the mistake. And, um, so that scene is quite, um, beautiful as well. When we start singing the duet. Makes the movie better. It yeah. really does. Okay. A couple more here. We'll be done. Um, when the film opens, you're a young, shy boy, but midway through, you're leading Dodger Stadium through a raucous sing-along of Rocketman decked out in a bedazzled baseball uniform with 20,000-plus in the palm of your hand. Can you talk about the transformation from shy kid to the fearless showman in outlandish <laughs> costumes? Well, there's a tradition in, of English bands. Um, because we have a, a huge vaudeville influence in England, um, English artists like the Rolling Stones, Mick, Rod Stewart, um, Freddie Mercury, um, Mark Bolan. Um, we've always dressed up and we've always got our outfit on for stage. It's part and part of my ritual. I'm in the dressing room, say, at 7 o'clock and I'm on stage at 8 and then until I put my costume on, I don't become Elton. And then when I come off stage and I take that costume off, I leave Elton on the stage. And I've really, never really taken Elton home with me. Um, um, even though I dress flamboyantly in public as well. Um, I think the ritual of just getting dressed and showing off, which it is, um, is so much fun. And there haven't really been many American bands that have done that. They've always been, America's been the land of the, you know, Bob Dylan in the jeans and Bruce Springsteen and the Joan Baezes and the Donnie Mitchells who come on, you know, very, very simply. Um, whereas in Britain, um, bands tended to be much more flamboyant. The Who, Pete Townsend and the Union Jack, outfit um you know even led zeppelin you know with robert plant and his leather and his suede and his you know they um dressing up was part and parcel of it and i it just made me feel good um it just was exciting it still is which of the costumes the classic ones from the film do you remember most fondly um god i mean there's not an exact one. Um, I really like the one at the beginning of the film when I'm stomping into treatment <laughs> with the devil's horns. And um, I wore the, the costumes in the film are just remarkable because they're not exactly the same, but they are kind of what I wore. Um, and I love that outfit because it plays a part throughout the whole film until, you know, he takes a bit of it off and still he's sitting there in a little robe and a pair of slippers. And that's all he has on, basically, a pair of underpants. Um, I think what I did when I did go into rehab, I couldn't wear any jewelry. I had I had to wear a basic tracksuit. I couldn't be Elton. I had to be me. And that's as he's in treatment, he's going back to being Reg um, and and stripping himself of all the excess and going back to basics. Um, 
And I think when I got sober and I got clean, that's exactly what I had to do. And it took me two or three years to start learning to walk again. Um, you get so strung out and you get so um, out of touch with reality and so kind of insane that um, normality was, you know, was a welcome relief, um, but it took some getting used to. In the film, there's this tension between you as Reginald White, the name your parents gave you, and Elton John, the stage name you gave yourself and the persona you took on. Are we talking to Elton now or are we talking to Reg? We're talking to Elton now. Uh, Elton, um, Reg happened, Reg was up, Reg and Elton were two separate things until I got sober. And in the film when I hug him and, and I say to him, I'm Elton Hercules, John, my manager. And that's when I accepted who I was and started working on myself. And, you know, it's, I've been 29 years now this year. So um, it's been a journey which has been exceptionally exciting and rewarding. Um, but I think up to that point, I was still two people. You know, that, uh, there's a great story. I can put Elton on in an instant. I can become Elton. And there's Truma Capote walking Marilyn Monroe down uh, Fifth Avenue. And she's just very dressed very down, pair of jeans, just a little coat. And he said, I can't believe no one's looking at you. And she goes, do you want to see her? <laughs> and, you know, that's it. You can switch on this alter ego. Um, as I get older, I just don't like, you know, I, I don't like f fame so much. Um, I like acclaim, but I don't like fame. And I don't like the cult of personality, what's become the cult of personality. Mm. Um, so I'm less comfortable with going out in public now than I used to be. Uh, you know, I just had so much fun when I was younger. I'd go to anything and have a great time. Nowadays, I'd rather stay home with my children and, you know, and, you know, and appreciate what I've got. I work so hard for it. I never see it. You have worked hard at it. And one of the things the movie gets at is your hard work in the beginning of your career and honing of your craft. And can you talk a little bit about your piano playing and the piano players who may have influenced you? Um, well, I'm an I've been influenced by so many different piano players. Um, I think when I first heard Little Richard and Jerry Lewis, um, that was um, a big turning point, and Ray Charles and Fats Domino. They, um, you know, they revolutionized piano playing for me. And Honky Cat is a mixture. I became obsessed with Leon Russell. He was my idol in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and... I love that kind of funky, you know, the band, Leon Russell, that Americana-type piano playing. Um, there's all sorts of influences in my piano playing. Um, classical influences from when I was at the Royal Academy. Little Floyd Kramer here and there. Mm. Uh, Leon Russell. Um, um, there's so many wonderful piano players that I've drawn inspiration from. In the movie, there's an important scene with Honky Cat playing. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, Honky Cat is when I... And I start to live with my manager, uh, John Reed. Um, and it's when I start, you know, enjoying my money and um, buying so many paintings. Or, you know, I, I didn't buy paintings like that. It's just a, it's a hi hyperbolic uh, visual uh, description of what I was like. Um, but, I, you know, I got the big house and everything like that, and I started to enjoy myself. I've always liked to collect good, nice things, and I've always liked to um, improve my intelligence by, you know, learning about art and, and, and culture. So that was the, um, the moment, I think, in that song that I, I became Elton John's superstar. The superstardom happened in tandem with the drug and alcohol abuse, as those things normally go. 
And do you want to talk a little bit about the darker side of your addiction and fame? No, um, I started really being addicted to um, drugs in about 1975, 1976. Um, I could take them for a period and give them up for a long time. Um, and I wasn't always stoned out of my mind for 16 years. There were periods when I stopped. But I always went back. And um, when you go back, you do more and you drink more. So I hit my bottom in 1987, 1988, 89, um, when I was just taking drugs. And the reason I like cocaine, it was the opened me up and I could talk, even though it was a load of old rubbish. It go, um, and in the end, the drug that opened me up closed me down. I just spent the last two or three weeks before I went to rehab on my own in my house in London uh, with nobody there. Um, it took me half an hour to walk to the door because I was afraid someone might hear me, but there was nobody there. It's an insan insanity. So um, that, was the, that was the real rock bottom for me. And there's a scene in the movie when he's doing that and he falls down the stairs after he's having a heart attack. The isolation of doing the drugs and um, the madness. I would have seizures and half an hour later, I would be doing it again. It's absolute insanity. So I hope also, but when people see this, it helps them get sober and clean. I hope it realizes that there is help there for people if you ask for it. it took me a long time for ask her, to ask for it. But for me, it's just wonderful to see that I don't have to do that anymore. It's like, I did this. It was part and parcel of who, who I became. And I wouldn't be the person I am today if I hadn't gone through that and survived and then learnt a different way of life. So in a way, I had to go through that to become the person I am today. But looking at it, I wish I didn't have to have gone through that. It was like, if I had my advice to anybody is do not touch them. Do not touch drugs. Even weed, you know, don't, it's, you know, it's so strong nowadays, it's ridiculous. Switching gears a little bit and getting back into the film, there's a part of the movie that uses Tiny Dancer. Can you tell us about that scene? Well, Tiny Dancer in the film is when I play the troubadour for the first night and everyone goes crazy. And then Doug Weston says, come on, let's celebrate. There's a party at Mama Cassie's house. And I did go to a party at Mama Cassie's house. Maybe not on the opening night of the troubadour, but I did go there. And there were so many wonderful people there. Um, but it's when Bernie meets Heather and... Um, they kind of meet at the troubadour and then they go to the party and then Bernie says, do you mind if I go off? Um, and I go, no, no, that's all right. And of course, I am devastated because I want to be with him to share my, you know, to share my joy in the evening. And um, and even though Bernie and I were never sexually uh, a, a couple, of course not, there was, I had a love, deep love for him. And um, it was like losing my best friend at a time when I wanted to celebrate. And then that's when John comes in, um, which wasn't the case in real life. But, um, it, it, you know, I wandered through the house and, and, and the, the feeling of loneliness during that song. And then suddenly all my dreams come true because I'm, I don't, I stop being a virgin and here I go into the world of sex and drugs. Sex and drugs and rock and roll and Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting is one of your greatest straight-up rock songs. And to me, it's one of the greatest scenes in the movie. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, it, it, Saturday Night starts in the pub when I'm playing as like a 15-year-old, 14-year-old, 15-year-old when I was at school. And then, it, you know, there's a fight starts in the pub. And then I jump out the window uh, as a, uh, played by Kit Connor, um, as a little boy, a teenage boy. And then I go through the fence and I come out as Taron Edgerton. 
And then there's this fantastic dance sequence on Saturday night, which is a bit Grease. Um, I always think um, it's like the film is like Grease meets all that jazz mm. meets Tommy. Yeah. Um, it's a wonderful sequence. And it comes right at the beginning of the movie, practically. Um, and uh, it just lifts you up. It, it's like, what a great way to, uh, to start it. And Taron, when he comes into the shot, looks so much like a star. And looks so much like me. We've had a couple of reviews in England. We've had fantastic reviews. And a couple of reviews that said, Tan looks like Phil Collins. There was one. It's like, no. no. Um, he looks so much like me, it's ridiculous. Um, and that he's too pretty to play me. Well, you know, I, he and I, at those times, if you compare photographs of me and him at that time, and uh, we look pretty much alike. And when he comes into shot for Saturday night and you see him, and Kit Connor disappears and Taron comes into the frame, you go, wow. A bit like seeing John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever. Mm. It's a great scene. I also love the scene with Betty and the Jets. Can you tell us about that song's release? It's not covered in the film, but that song's rise has an interesting backstory. You didn't think it could be a hit, correct? Well, I was making um, the follow-up to Goodbye Yellow Bit Road at Caribou Ranch, which was Caribou. And in those days, we were making records when the other one just came out. We did two albums a year. So we'd already had... Um, Saturday Night's Arrive for Fighting was the first single. Goodbye Yellow Brick Row was the second. And The Rest of the World, Candle in the Wind, was the third single. But in America, they wanted to put out Benny and the Jets. And I kept saying no. And they kept ringing me up, Pat Pipolo from uh, the promotion man of uh, Universal. And in the end, I kept saying no. And he said, listen, let me tell you a story. This record is the number one record on black radio in, in Detroit. And I went, what do you mean, R&B? He said, yeah. And it's number one. And I went, oh, my God. I'm a white boy from Pinner, and I, this is the music I've loved all my life. So put it out. And, of course, it became not only a huge hit on um, black radio, but also on pop radio. And it was the theme song for the Detroit Pistons for quite a long time. It's one of your biggest hits. And, but your first big hit, your song, the making of that song is pretty special, and its portrayal in the film is pretty tender. Can you talk a bit about that scene and more about that tune? Your singing in the movie is pretty much like how we wrote it, um, except my mum and gran weren't there. But um, it was the first lyric I got from Bernie um, for the Elton John album that I just more or less played all the way through. I mean, it just in the film he starts it and then he it all comes together very quickly. And that's the way it kind of happened in real life. And I couldn't believe how excited I was when I... I knew when I finished writing that song that we'd written a great song. And I could not wait to... It was the perfect marriage of words and music. And I couldn't wait to get him in from the bedroom because we, you know, he ne we never... You know, he's never in the same room as me. And I got him in from the bedroom and played it to him. And we just... We knew that we had something special there. And we knew that we'd take a huge, taken a huge leap in our songwriting ability. And when you think that that's the first hit I had, and it was such a song that's lasted for so long, usually sometimes you can't follow that up. And um, mm. it wasn't the case for us. Although in our early albums, you know, your song was a hit from your song, uh, from Elton John, but there was no single from Tumbleweed. We were album artists. Uh, there was Tiny Dancer and Leave On from Madman, but they weren't big hits. And then when I added David Johnson to the band and got my band to play on the records, which was Honky Chateau, it moved the sound of the band into another direction. And hence, you got Rocket Man and Honky Cat um, because it was mostly band. It wasn't orchestral. And so, you know, it's, it was the song that gave us the confidence 
to um, to reach for the stars. Amarina is a deep cut that makes it into the film. Right. Can you talk about the origin of that song and why it makes sense for that particular it's scene? It's always been one of my favorite songs. It was the only song in Dog Day Afternoon. It's a very different kind of It's a, a Tumbleweed is a very Americana album. We'd discovered the band mm-hmm. and we, you know, we wanted to, this was Bernie's cowboy record. And, um, and I just, I've been very influenced by Van Morrison on the vocal of that. Um, uh, I can hear him singing that song. Um, it was just, you know, we were on a roll and that album was written pretty quickly as well. We were writing that album when we were making the Elton John record. So we had a bat, we had a bunch of songs. They were completely different songs to the Elton John record. Um, but Anne Marina was, there's a few songs like that in my catalogue, which I love the piano sound, the piano solo. Um, there's a song called Mellow on uh, Honky Chateau, which I just love so much. Um, they're not the big hit songs. And one day when I do do a concert again, which won't be a traveling concert, it'll be a, you know, maybe two weeks in London or something like that. Those are the songs that I'm going to play. Mm, I like that. One of my favorite songs in the film is Bitches Back. Can you tell us about that scene? Um, right at the beginning of the film, the first dance sequence in the film, the first piece of music, really, um, when I'm Matthew Ilsey, who plays me as a little boy, and he comes and confronts me or teases me while I'm in treatment, um, gone into rehab, and I chase him out, and we end up in the street where I was brought up. Um, and there's a kind of... It's not a long sequence, but it's a, a choreographed sequence. And then that's when you meet my mother. And then that's when you hear the first of Reggie. And the film does an amazing job of playing off the tension between you and Bernie and how the two of you, quote unquote, never had a real argument. Is this true? Um, there's tension, but he would, it was deafening silence more than an argument. It was like Bernie would just, you know, when I'm screaming at him at back at the Albert Hall saying, I've sold this, I've done this, and you, you just write the lyrics, Bernie, and let me do the stuff. And then I stomp towards the stage and come back, and I go, sorry about that. He goes, yeah, I know. And uh, that's how it was. We didn't have arguments, but there, there could be silences, or he would bring me up the next day and say, do you remember what he did? I go, no. And uh, it was more of an admonishment, but never arguments. Never, never, never had a stand-up blazing row. There was never... There was a little bit of jealousy involved when he went to write for other people and did We Built This City and These Dreams. Um, but it was because I missed him. But I was pleased for him. He need, If I'd have said to him, you can't write with anybody else but me, that would have finished our relationship. And I was very uh, savvy enough to know that would be the case. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to let him go to get him back. And he needed that. And if I hadn't have done that, we wouldn't have continued as a as a writing partnership and I was intelligent enough to know as much as it hurt and I would miss him I had to do that so the film comes out this week it's the end of May and you have a book coming out in October tell us a little bit about the book the book is incredible um I'm said modestly but it is um it's um incredibly honest and um I'm so happy with it um it's now been finished um I'm waiting to get a galley and it comes out in October. It's called Me. Um, and um, the film will set the book up. If you think the film's out there, you went to hear the, read the book. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you. We really appreciate it.
Special thanks to Elton John and David Furnish for making this happen. Check out Elton's new film, Rocket Man, in theaters now, and check out my podcast, Disgraceland, a rock and roll true crime podcast about musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Musicians who aren't Elton John. Elton John is a sweetheart. But musicians like Snoop Dogg, Amy Winehouse, Jerry Lee Lewis, Ike Turner, their stories are a little more complicated. You can hear all about them and a host of other rock stars on Disgraceland, hosted by me, Jake Brennan, and available on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it and travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel, it's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.